Good morning, everyone. I want to invite you to turn to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. I'm very thankful to have the opportunity to be here in chapel. I actually owe a lot to Maranatha, and I'm not talking about my school debt. <laughs> I, uh, I'm very thankful for the education I received here. Uh, I'm very thankful for the spiritual growth that occurred in my life when I was here. I'm very thankful for the lifelong relationships that were forged while I was here. And not the least of which, I met a very, very nice young lady who's now been my wife for many years, Tamara. So both of us uh, graduates of Maranatha, we're so thankful for our years here and how it prepared us for life. And this morning, uh, we are looking at the passion of a missionary heart out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We cannot all be missionaries. We can't all experience the places and see the faces. But we can all be passionate about world evangelism. It's not just the missionary, but all of us need to be moved as Jesus Christ was at the sight of sheep without a shepherd. And that's the spirit of what I see in this entire chapter. You could summarize the book of 1 Thessalonians really as Paul's attempt to pass his missionary heart on to these new converts. What does a genuine missionary heart look like? How do we develop a heart for missions? How do I know if I have a missionary heart? I'm convinced that one true glimpse of the spiritual reality of the world around us will accomplish in our hearts a more transformative work than a hundred sermons about our misplaced affections and distractions. At least I think that's what Paul's doing here in this chapter, one of my favorite chapters. Uh, Larry Crabb said it this way, the core problem is not that we're too passionate about the wrong things, but that we're not passionate enough about the right things. And so often that's been my heart's problem. We're dealing with the heart this morning. We're talking about passion. I see the whole book of 1 Thessalonians that way. It's a whole book about heart. Uh, you look at chapter 1, it's the heart of an infant church. You delve into chapter 2, it's the heart for ministry. Then you get to the chapter we're, we're looking at, chapter 3, and it is the, um, the missionary heart, the heart of passion for missions. Chapter 4, the heart for holiness. Chapter 5, the heart of a believer who anticipates all of the promises of God. And I would say that a healthy Christian is going to have all five of those hearts. But we don't have time to look at all five. We're going to focus in on chapter 3 this morning. And uh, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I want you to follow along as I begin in verse 5. And especially notice passion and heart as we read through here. You won't see those words, but look at the way it's expressed. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear... I sent to know your faith, 
lest by some means the tempter have tempted you and our labor be in vain. But now when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity and that ye have good remembrance of us always desiring greatly to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. And now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love, one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. And the end, or to the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with his saints. Whatever else you could say indicates a missionary heart, passion is indispensable to it. Passion permeates this chapter, and Paul is going to give us two evidences of it. And the first is the passion that we have for the work we do. And as you read through here, you're going to see Paul's heart for the work that God called him to do. He had a well-defined understanding of exactly what he was supposed to do as a missionary. He well understood the task. And in addition to that, he had a passionate resolve to see that through, to accomplish that task. Notice how he characterizes the initial work that he did, his uh, brief uh, ministry that he had in Thessalonica when he went there to evangelize the city. It could have been as short as three weeks, perhaps as long as six months. In any case, it is remarkable to see the impact that he had in such a short time. And it gives us confidence about the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ if we will get out and passionately serve him. And uh, he says for us, if you look here in verse 4, he says, When I was there, in addition to evangelism, I taught you a theology of suffering. <laughs> he prepared them for suffering. The Greek word there actually conveys the idea of pressure. And I don't suppose that students have any concept of being under pressure. Uh, but if you ever do feel a little bit of pressure... You can take some consolation in having a biblical foundation right here to say, I am suffering. I am suffering. But uh, I think you'd be driving it home a, bit, a little bit too far if you say that your professors are persecuting you. Don't, don't go that far. Okay. Now notice in verse 6 also what the Apostle Paul accomplished with them. The faith. 
He talks about the faith that he instilled with them. And if you read through here, you're going to see that he's talking about two things. He's talking about the body of truth, the doctrine, that which they must accept and believe, and he's talking about the response to it. The Apostle Paul, as the missionary, was impressed with how these new converts responded to the truth and uh, had faith in action. He commends them for responding to the truth. Now, I have the opportunity to travel a good amount. And as I talk to pastors and I interact with pastors, my perception is that the number one complaint that pastors have in ministry is this. The people that they preach to accept the message, but they don't change. I hope this morning that does not describe you. I hope that if you feel that that in any way describes you, that you really fall under conviction this morning. You don't want to get down life's path and have that as a description of you. And these new converts at Thessalonica, they had an appetite to learn and apply the knowledge that they learned. And we see in verse 6, he commends them for agape love, this charity. Also, you'll find it in verse 12. And again, he's talking about two things. He's talking about the love that they had for one another in the church. But he's also just as much talking about this agape love that they had for the lost world around them, a love that compelled them to go out and reach the people that they did not know, people who had not yet heard the gospel. And he's commending them for both of those. How well I remember five Zimbabwean families. These uh, families were living under dreadful conditions in the country of Zimbabwe. In my opinion, one of the worst places to live on the planet. They decided to leave their country. They crossed the border through the Limpopo River with crocodiles, traveled hundreds of miles, not knowing for sure where they would end up, but knowing what they had to leave. And the reason I mention this now is that five of these men came to know Christ, were gripped by agape love, and responded to the call of God to take the gospel back to Zimbabwe. Before conversion, it would have been the last place on earth they ever would have wanted to go back to. But the love of Christ compelled them. And This morning, as I speak to you, there are churches flourishing in the country of Zimbabwe because of the love of Christ compelling his people to follow his leading and guiding. Do not squelch the leading of God in your life. So what we see here is the missionary's heart for the work. And secondly, we also see that Paul talks about this concern he had because he had to leave them so soon. He was very concerned. It caused him anxiety. And he says, for that reason, I sent back Timothy. And Paul's passion for the work made him concerned about the unfinished work. Uh, And uh, so Timothy went back, we see in verse 2, to establish them. That's our 
concept of discipleship, to stabilize them. Uh, In missiological terms, we would say that the missionary, the Apostle Paul, sent Timothy back to further the indigenous process and the autonomous process. He wanted that church to be able to belong in its own culture um, and in its own setting, and secondly, to be able to be autonomous in not needing foreign help, to be able to function, to have the, the, doctrine, the doctrinal uh, foundation, and to be able to reach the lost world and govern themselves according to the principles of the New Testament. That was what Timothy was sent to do. And any missionary work that doesn't see those goals is very short-sighted. This really brings me to an experience I had that drove this home. You know, you can be taught in your mission classes about the importance of grounding, the importance of uh, autonomy in the work that you're doing. What you see on the screen there are pictures from a number of new church plants along the Zimbabwe, I'm sorry, among the Zambezi River upstream from Victoria Falls. I had the privilege of surveying this area a few years ago. What I found were very young, extremely dedicated, very sacrificial, inspiring men pastoring these little churches. Literally men who did not have two coins to squeeze together. Men who had a rock for a pillow. And I was, I as you, would be very impressed with the, the spirit of these men. I was in one of these churches, supposed to preach in the morning, set through the Sunday school hour, didn't understand a thing, of course, as the pastor did his Sunday school lesson. Then my uh, Zambian friend got up to introduce me. And he went on and on and on. And I thought, well... Sure, five minutes. There's lots of things to say about me. No, I'm, I'm teasing. You know, I was getting really irritated as he went on and on, and I couldn't understand what he was saying. So he went on for at least 10 minutes. Finally, I got up to preach. And after the service, I went straight to my Zambian friend. I said, what were you doing? And he says, no, you don't understand, Kevin. You would not believe the false doctrine that this pastor taught during the Sunday school hour. I just had to get up and correct all that false doctrine before you got up to preach. (laughs) I was astounded. I was astounded. Hey, I I found a church one time, a Baptist church. The pastor did not own a Bible. So believe me, it is important that we understand, as Paul did, that the work needs to be grounded. And so he says in verse 2, I sent Timothy also to comfort you. He knew they would be persecuted. He sent Timothy to prevent them from falling away from the faith. That was a concern that Paul had. He did not want them to be moved. And uh, for those of you who are Greek students, that is a present passive infinitive, moved. For the rest of us, what he's saying basically is, Don't be moved, okay? Just stay where you're at and don't be moved. And we'll get, uh, we won't get that deep meaning, the rest of us. If you want to get the deep meaning, take Greek. I highly recommend it. I see Brother Oates sitting over here, and I think he'll say amen to that. All right. Uh, Don't, he didn't want them to be moved from their position, their standing. And 
Thirdly, I want you to notice, even after Timothy came back, even after Timothy gave the good report, Paul still, as the missionary, had concerns. And he went on to uh, mention some things, and I'm just going to briefly state these, and I want you to think about what he's saying. Verse 10, I still feel that you need to be perfected. Verse 12, I still feel that you need to increase and abound in love. Verse 13, you still need to progress in this area of holiness, personal sanctification. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 1, you still need to abound more and more, general sanctification. Now, you think about what Paul's saying, and I ask you a question. Where else do you accomplish those four important goals apart from a local church? It doesn't happen any other way. And in Paul's mind, in Paul's, don't know if, whoops, okay, sorry. Okay, there it is. All right. Uh, in Paul's mind, missions is the work of planting enduring churches. He understood that that required doctrinal grounding, Qualified leadership, by the way, I saw on your screen this morning, Maranatha, I think the word was developing leaders. Is that what it said? I hope you grab a hold of that. That's what you're here for. And uh, he says, I submit to you that there is no task uh, that the missionary has that is greater, in my opinion, for long-term success of missions than the adequate training of national leadership. It doesn't matter how good of a job you do in every other area. Without competent national leadership, it is doomed. By the way, that's also the reason for Baptist World's motto, planting churches worldwide. That is a very brief statement of a theological position. Then let's quickly move on here, and we we will not be late. We won't be too late. Uh, Passion for the people. This is the second evidence. Passion for the people. Uh, I know that there's overlap here. Passion for the work, passion for the people. I see that. I understand that. But I do see in this chapter some important distinctions to be made. And that's why I've chosen to do it this way. Paul's heart was intimately tied to the people. They were not his job. They were his children. Lawyers lose cases. Doctors, they lose patients. But the loss of a disciple, that's a personal tragedy. He says in verse 5, lest our labor be in vain. Verse 8, even a stronger statement. Listen to this. We live if you stand fast in the Lord. I probably spent more time studying that statement than any other part of this entire chapter. What does the Apostle Paul mean? When he makes such a statement, we live if you stand fast in the Lord. It's a first-class conditional sentence. It has the idea of, since you're standing fast in the Lord, we are now living. Um, Probably the very best way to put that in uh, modern vernacular would be to say this. I was holding my breath until Timothy got back. And when he gave me the good report... 
Ah, I can breathe again. I can breathe again. You're well. That's the heart. That's the passion of the Apostle Paul. Do the needs of other people move you like that? I know we are so consumed with our daily needs, and rightfully so. But there has to be room in our heart for compassion, for the missionary heart. We cannot fail God in such a primary area of Christian responsibility. It reminds me of 3 John 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. You know, we often rightly emphasize that we cannot gauge our ministries by the response of the people. I understand that. There's truth to that. Yet we cannot escape here in this passage that Paul was deeply affected by the conduct of his converts. Now, somewhere there's a balance, and I don't even know that I could enunciate where that balance exactly should be. But we don't want to be on either end of this scale. Somewhere there's a balance. He's definitely saying that his own sense of purpose, his own sense of wholeness, is directly tied to the welfare of these people. It is the heart of a parent. It is passion for the people. Without it, we're wasting time in ministry. We see in verse 1 and verse 5, he says, could no longer forbear. Think about that. No longer forbear. In modern language, I just had to do something. Those exact words were spoken to me as a pastor, as a missionary pastor in South Africa. On a Sunday morning, this Sunday school teacher, pictured there on the screen, came up to me, one of our church members, pastor, her exact words, we just have to do something. What was she talking about? Well, going back to the picture you saw earlier of those five Zimbabwean families, they were part of a much larger tragedy that had played out in our community, literally within walking distance from the door of our church, we had all these people living in UN tents. And because of the burden of this lady, our church went out and were, through the direction of the Lord and the Holy Spirit, were able to see five key families converted to Christ, discipled, brought into the church, and ultimately sent back to Zimbabwe as pastors. What's the point? It's, it would not have happened, were it not, for a Sunday school teacher who had a missionary's heart. For a Sunday school teacher who had passion for a lost world all around her. Let's not fail God in this. He says in verse 6, I desire to see you. He says in verse 7 uh, that he's comforted in his own afflictions by the good news. It's as if he's saying this, I count my personal sacrifices as nothing so long as my ministry bears fruit in your lives. Does this not suggest a symbiotic relationship between a missionary and his churches? A church ministry benefits by the ministry of its missionaries. And a missionary's ministry benefits 
by the ministry of the supporting churches. And it's extremely short-sighted and unscriptural to ever harbor the idea that missions somehow is a drain to the resources of a local church. It is lifeblood, not a drain. He says in verse 9 that their spiritual growth is a source of joy to him. In verse 10, oh, I'm sorry. He says in verse 10 that he cared so much for these people that he was compelled to pray day and night. Verse 11, despite persecution, he greatly desired to return to these believers. It is important that we accept our sheep as from the Lord. We need a Psalm 23 attitude toward them. I think missionaries would do well to view their conflicts with national believers more as a reflection upon their own leadership than upon the coldness and hardness of people's hearts. Now, as I wrap this all up this morning, I want to say I have purposely tooled this for a large group, not specifically for missionaries, not specifically for people called to missions. I've done that for two reasons. One, because I really think that's, that captures what's happening here in this chapter. But secondly, because I want this to be very applicable to every one of us sitting here today. And that's the reason I've chosen this final analogy. In October of 2016, the F-15 Strike Eagles of the 389th Fighter Squadron were deployed to liberate Mosul, Iraq from ISIS under the banner of Operation Inherent Resolve. By late December, intelligence had uncovered a secret ISIS chemical weapons research facility hidden in the basement of a four-story building in downtown Mosul. Central Command chose an attack option that worked in theory, but had never actually been used in combat. To avoid collateral damage while maximizing target penetration, they chose to send in two F-15 Strike Eagles for a surgical attack, each armed with the maximum ordnance payload short of atomic weapons. Both jets were stripped of their external fuel tanks. They were laden with seven 2,000-pound bunker-busting bombs. Borrowing from the Vietnam War and in honor of the squadron's nickname, the Thunderbolts, they dubbed the special mission Operation Rolling Thunder. The base commander came out to salute the two jets as they left the base on their historic mission and headed for Iraqi airspace. After refueling from a tanker just outside the hot zone, they had just enough fuel to hit the target and return to the tanker. The two F-15s simultaneously dropped the 14 bombs with devastating effectiveness, and this particular photo was taken during the mission. I had the opportunity to interview one of the mission pilots. He was quick to emphasize that there were literally, well, there's the devastating effectiveness. There were literally hundreds of people involved in that mission. From the refueling tanker to the rescue helicopters 
the invisible eyes on the ground, surveillance aircraft, electronic warfare, monitors at central command, ordnance handlers, maintenance, support, contingency crews. All of these people were as passionate and necessary as the pilot in the cockpit pressing the red button. Is the mission as important to you as it is to your missionary? Only a few of you will be the missionary in the cockpit, delivering the good news. But Paul's message is here that all of us must be passionately involved, committed in our collective effort to fulfill the Great Commission. This is certainly Paul's purpose in our text. So I want to wind this up with a couple statements on the screen for you. We've seen two evidences of a genuine missionary heart. The demonstration of the heart we show for the work and for the people. We need to understand that developing a passion, a passionate heart for the work and for the people, is not primarily a result of calling or prayer, but of immersion into people's lives and their cultures. I'll let you in on a secret. During our years in Africa, one key inspiration that constantly fueled my passion for the work and the people was observing the transformative grace of God operating in the lives of national believers. And then finally, I could ask you this morning, a couple questions, I could ask you, are you called? I could ask you, are you willing to go? But first, you've got to ask yourself this question. Do I have the passion of a missionary heart? Do you not agree with me that that's a starting point? Am I passionate about the work of reaching people for Christ? These were certainly the questions the Thessalonians were asking themselves after receiving Paul's letter. One thing is certain. If I'm not involved in spiritual work and I'm not exposed to people in need, then I pray in vain for a missionary heart. Let's bow our heads. I'm going to pray in a moment. I would ask us to open our hearts to the Lord as I pray. To ask God, how ought I respond to what I've heard this morning? I would also encourage any of you who may be going through an issue right now, facing a decision, seeking the Lord's will about something, please, I implore you, whether you speak to me, one of the other faculty members, any of the visiting missionaries, uh, take advantage of the opportunity. Get some counsel. Let God have his way. Don't forget what God's done in your heart. Loving Father, as we bring chapel to a close today, we are thankful for the account we've had in the word of God about what you did in this young church at Thessalonica. Lord, we can't help but say, make us like that. Lord, help us who are older Christians to have that, that uh, enthusiastic spirit of, of the new convert. 
But Lord, help us to not get so caught up in the demands of life that we lose the very purpose of why we're here as your children, to have an impact and draw people to Christ. Lord, use this uh, mission emphasis this week to do a very lasting work. Lord, may we not uh, hear and then fail to act, but Lord, may we, like these Thessalonian believers, respond in faith to the faith once delivered. So Lord, do what we cannot do in each of our hearts as we dismiss with your blessing in the name of Christ. Amen.